Hey guys, welcome to episode two of the Squad Pod. I'm your host, T-Dog, and this week I got a special guest by the name of Blake Wharton. You may have heard of him. Former amateur sensation, Geico Honda rider, Rockstar Suzuki rider, the man with the best hair possibly ever in the sport. Sorry, Devin Simonson, but I think that's facts. Blake actually had a lot of good stuff to tell me. I did this interview about in March, I think. I wrote some columns on it. But today you get to listen to it. Blake gives a very honest interview about his amateur career, about some bikes and teams that he liked, and uh, it was very interesting. So give it a listen and let me know what you think. And uh, as always, thank you for listening. I've been keeping up with you on uh, Instagram, of course. Um, I know you're with RacerX, you know, so, so you're doing some freelance work and telling stories these days. So kind of give yes. people an update on what you're doing now. Well, I'm nine to fiving um, in the family business. <clears throat> that takes up a, you know, a pretty big chunk of time. But um, I still have my moto-related projects, you know, very much alive and. Uh, we're looking to do some more stuff for 2023, but yeah, when I stepped away the first time and you, you know, need, I took some time away from the sport, you know, and so I wasn't doing a whole lot for a year or two. Um, but now just trying to combine some of my passions with the motorcycle projects and, um, we got to work with some, some cool companies last year and do, um, a couple trips that were fascinating, you know, going to do test the Stark in Spain and then going to Israel to do an event. Um, their version of the Olympics for that specific country. Um, and then this year we got a, we got a cool opportunity with MX versus ATV. And, um, and then we've got the, uh, King of Daytona coming up, which is our, our next deal. So, uh, a lot of different things like that, really trying on as many hats as possible. But I like, I like to write as, as we've talked and I'm passionate about film. So anything that involves film or, you know, motorcycle related com uh, companies, you know, I try to try to, you know, sort of blend them all in. And then, of course, music, we we're still passionate about that. So always try to add that where we can. So as far as what we're doing, uh, a touch of everything right now, we're going to see what sticks for 2023. Right. So, you, you, you know, you got your uh, your passion project and it seems like um, you'll travel. You're, you're willing to travel a lot for your projects. Is that kind of what you'd like to do? Yes. Well, we have in the past, and, and we still will. Um, and, uh, yeah, we've, I mean, the farthest probably, I guess, it would be East Africa um, and then the Middle East, too. And, you know, the motorcycle abroad stuff is, you know, was one of the first things I got, I got into after racing. And I still really like that and would like to do it. Of course, those trips are a bit harder to get um scheduled and on the books but uh motorcycles in you know least likely of places essentially is what it is 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 a big story there there's not a lot of people that i think know you know to the extent that people around the world are pursuing bike racing of some kind or just bike culture and so we yeah, are willing to travel wherever the story takes us you know and my personal favorites are more of the least likely places or places that nobody's heard of i love the big events um i like doing the big you know, events and, and, and going to Supercross and all that, but there's a much broader story outside of the, the mainstream as well. This wasn't a planned uh, question, but it came up. So what, what, what part of the world were you most shocked, like that you've been to, were you most shocked that, that motocross was so big in? Well, I guess it would be, um, 
you know, because there's still some regions that we've that we've yet to to see. But I, I guess it would be the Middle East. And uh, again, we've only been to Israel, but we're looking to go to some different areas um, soon. But um, because you know that one was, I guess, a shocker for most people that that you know that that even existed. Um, I know Racer X was surprised when we first went over there and did that. And um, you know they have the means and they have the will to do it. They they love it. And then you know in other parts of the the world, it's kind of a a similar story. There's a lot of the same sorts of things. Really everywhere, it's it's high taxes and and uh, different things like that. Lower economic regions that that people can't afford. You know, fourteen thousand dollar bike, especially if the tariffs are double the price. So you see that a lot. But um, I would say, yeah, the Middle East and um, so far, just the most, I guess, wildest, and you know, who knows what we'll see going back. I've heard stories from other countries in the Middle East that are pretty crazy as well. So there's a lot more to tell in that giant region of the world. That's awesome. I mean, even like to just go there and and just have like a, a motocross, you know, project. Like you know, it's kind of probably scary kind of going in those some of them places so props sure. to you for going there and checking it out oh yeah 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 no it's it's different you know it's a it can be a bit of a culture shock there it's not too bad because it's very um it's very modern in a lot of in a lot of respects and obviously with traveling it depends on where you're going and who you're going with um but yeah i mean we know racing has been big in, in europe for a long time and and of course in the states there's a there's a big history there but pretty much you can go anywhere and there's going to be some sort of story. And a lot of the times it's kind of saying the same thing, but, um, yeah, you never know what you'll go and find. So gotta stay open for that. Yeah. Right on. You know, you, you have several wins under your belt. Like, do you have a certain favorite win of your career? Oh, uh, well, probably the first win. Um, yeah. yeah oh, nine St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in the, as far as the pros go, but, you know, U.S. Open and amateurs and uh, amateur destinations in Bulgaria, Loretta's, you know, those were special also. You know, the pros weren't any more special than those other ones because when you're an amateur, it's your whole world essentially anyways. It's not much different, really. You think, oh, you go to the big leagues and now this is it. Well, no, it's always the big show because we're at the top and that Loretta's race or that, you know, uh, us open or whatever it is it's it's literally the biggest race that you've you've had or that you're going to to that time uh, but as far as the pro races definitely i would say st louis 2009 yeah yeah, yeah that was yeah. your first uh full season in the pro ranks and it came pretty quickly um who is your favorite teammate uh, who is my favorite my favorite teammate um you've had many you have to pick just one though i know i know (laughs) well my favorite teammate was was hewitt hewitt we grew up together and we uh have a long history together when he was just starting out riding we were kind of all starting out riding at the same time um and so we were only teammates for a year but she was definitely my my favorite uh, teammate because we were you know good friends coming up so if I have to pick one, that there it is. Right. Yeah. So you grew up in Texas with like, um, like it was like a huge who, like it was a hotbed of amateur motocross back then. Like 
Hackley Lemoyne, Hewitt, like you said, the Hahn brothers came over. I mean, it was, I, there's so many I can't even remember, but what was it like growing up in that time period? It was, uh, yeah, like you said, it was a kind of a hotbed for amateur racing and it really didn't start there, but it, but it, but like people kept coming and, and so it became a place that was, was pretty good and well known for it, especially well, like in the amateur circuit, because people would travel through and stop here, there. Um, and it was, uh, it was awesome. I mean, it was, it's a, it's a great little town outside of racing. We would go, we would still go to California or Florida each year for the winter, just because the winter months were a little bit unpredictable. Um, still there in Texas, but you know, we, we were riding at tracks like Oak Hill before they were really famous back when it was just, you know, I don't know how many owners ago. And then Mosher Valley, which used to be the GNC, you know, before Oak Hill and was pretty epic you know, sort of renowned place, um, a long time ago. And, and so we would always go there on, on, on weeknights to, to do practice. And then of course we had Lake Whitney, which is no longer around and those weren't necessarily close to my town, but that's what we were doing. And, and that was kind of the Texas, that was what people went to Texas for with the, the two big nationals. And no, we, it's a special place, you know, it was still more of a horse town, um, a lot more horse people there than moto. But, um, no, it's a, it's a great place and my mom's still there. And, and so we're actually not too far from where we, uh, where we grew up. Right. So, I mean, everybody knows, I feel like everybody should know it. That's like our age now it's Pilot Point, Texas. Like that was like where everyone was from, but like, there's no way everyone lived in that town. Right. Well, as far as the racers that were, yeah, no. So yeah. as far as the racers that were in, like the Hans didn't live there at that time. They lived in Decatur for, for a certain amount of time. The Lemoines lived in Tioga. The Hewitts lived in Pilot Point. We lived in Pilot Point. And there were some other guys there and there were some tracks even there in the area. But it was more like the Dallas area because Hackley lived further away and Cunningham lived further further away as well. But we would race the same events and, and race the same the same stuff. So we would see each other essentially every weekend. And that that kind of adds up to, you know, how fast and how good you guys got in that area because you guys were pushing each other, I'm sure, to the limit every weekend, even at local races. Yeah, yeah, you have to have that. I mean, that's a huge part of the, a successful, thriving um, amateur racing scene. You, you have to have you know, competition. And I've always said it, but it's like first place can only be as good as second place. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't have someone like, uh, Alessi had Villapoto and, and then Millsap had Alessi, you know, Stewart is a bit of an exception, but I know there's some guys that he even raced, you know, earlier on before he got really, really, really good. And Carmichael had Bogart and all these guys. And so, yeah, we saw each other every weekend. I mean, a lot of it was the pro circuit series racing back when that was pretty big winter series, stuff like that. Um, of course the nationals, but you had more people there, but it definitely didn't hurt, you know? Um, so that was, it made for some exciting times. Yeah. Some, 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 uh, interesting times, some, uh, AMAs officials being called and having to separate <laughs> some riders and all of that which I'm sure you remember. So <laughs> wait a minute. What? I actually don't. Well, just, just like, you know, when we would race, there was, there would be, you know, heat, but with say, Taryn Odell, which I talked to Taryn some now anyways, and 
and it's all good. But like, you know, the, me and Odell were very, you know, big rivals. And then my brother would race 80s sometimes as well. And so he'd get into the mix. And then Zeb Smith was in the mix. Sometimes it was, you know, me and Matt or my brother and Matt getting into a, a takeout session on the track. And, you know, that was just, you know, good old fashioned, you know, <laughs> amateur racing posturing or whatever you want to call it. Of course, we had the Oklahoma boys that we would see too, which would be like Tenard, who he would race with us as well they were a little bit colder so they would come down to race so yeah we had a, a pretty good little little area sometimes yeah some things would get heated but that just makes for some good memories but between you know other than california and florida i think that texas was the was a hub for for that region for sure our area i love it that's awesome how do you feel about the new era of training facilities and riders not racing um, local races or just coming out four or five times a year to race some big nationals. Like what's your take on all that? Well, it's hard. I mean, I, I wouldn't recommend it. I think that, you know, the training facilities are definitely uh, can be good, but back then there were no training facilities. Not really. I mean, you had no staffs in, in GPF, Georgia training facility, GTF, whatever, mm-hmm. but those are still pretty new. And, I mean, they're essentially businesses, and so which is fine. But you can lose a little bit of the of the drive and the and the passion and uh, parental supervision, from what I've seen and what I've heard. And then, of course, there's just the fact that you can't replace, you can't replicate racing. And so, you know, we don't have to race as much as we did. We we probably all race a bit too much, but. Uh, the racing is definitely where you make your, your strides as an amateur. And so I think it's important nowadays. Yeah. Go spend some time at a training facility. If you want to sit still for a while, two, three weeks, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't replace it totally, but you know, they, they seem to do quite well. Uh, these, these training facilities are obviously able to make some money. So there's definitely some good there as well. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of kids there, a lot of big concentration of, of talent but it's not racing. Yeah. And would you back in the day, like the way your, your contracts were set up, you had to hit a certain amount of races every year. Didn't you? Like it was, well, you did, but and I, that never even registered really when I was right. here, just because we raced so much anyway. So it was like, that was never in question. Uh, you know, we probably meet those obligations for the, for one whole year at like three months into the season that's we already hit all the races that we we were supposed to do but mm-hmm. yeah i think um you were supposed to hit a certain amount but i just don't know how anyone would get you know really really good without the racing and uh there's some exceptions but most of the time there's always somebody there with that one rider like the Cincerello and Webb i mean there's a there's some pretty interesting duos so mm-hmm. They don't like it at the time. Of course, none of those guys like each other when they're young. It maybe has changed a little, but when you get older, you'll you know see that, oh, that was important, especially if you don't have a sibling. If you don't have a sibling that's racing with you, then it's like you really need to have someone there. But um, it's it's not hard to make a rival or, or arch nemesis in amateur racing. Let's just put it that way. So right. <laughs> there's no shortage of rivals. Who do we got this weekend? Oh, we got such and such and such and such. All right. Could we got next weekend? Well, we got five of them next weekend. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It's just uh, like you said, you know, that everything's changing and now 
you know, it it's going to be different. Weird to see an effect of like what the training facilities actually do with riders and like racecraft. I don't know if you see anything yeah. like that when you watch well, racing, I but I don't know of, of the younger guys currently racing who spent time where and for an extended True. period of time. True. Um, but I mean, you know, if you're good, you're good kind of regardless. I mean, James would have been good regardless, but you, there's something to be learned with, with racing and may, you know, of course winning is important, but even losing, um, and you don't really have that same losing effect at these training facilities. So I think it's important to lose a certain amount when you're in amateur racing, it, it definitely doesn't hurt you going pro, but winning too much can, yeah, winning too much can hurt you. And uh, so always having someone to that's, you know, never, never sandbag the class, right? Never, mm-hmm. never cherry pick the class. And if, if it's too easy, then, then go somewhere else. And uh, when we would do some of the racing back in the day, my dad even would sign me up for like, I was seven to 11 still, and he would sign me up for 12, 13 class. And so I actually got in trouble for that one time. I got protested at Lake Whitney and lost a championship because we raced the, 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 the older class like two months before. But that was how much he was willing and wanting us to be pushed. And I had a sibling anyway, so it's not like we weren't riding together during the week. But it's essential. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty much essential. In 2007, you, you first get picked up by Cole Gress, right? That was your su- first support back in the day? Well, first support was was Craig Martin um, in two thousand and three. We were there two thousand, excuse me, two thousand two and two thousand three. Okay. And I still keep in touch with Craig, and we talk every now and then. But then, yeah, then we went to Suzuki in oh uh, four. Well, at the very end of oh three, and we were with with Cole. Okay, so you know, you come off of your successful two thousand six year with them, and then you join KTM on their new. Uh, amateur team kind of revamped right it was you tommy week uh who else am i missing your brother was that uh, right? jacob hayes my brother uh derek uh rogers derek rogers and uh was there anybody else no that was it for the first year yeah and i don't yeah i don't know if it was revamped or that was their first program like of early stages of the orange brigade i think it was they had other guys of course before us but it was really more like zach osborne and that was it right so i think that that was the inception uh of the amateur racing um what it's become today and it's interesting because um you know that first year you had one year with the team right because then you went to factory connection the next year Kind of explain going from Suzuki to KTM and your decision on that and kind of the year you had. You won like 800 championships. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know what's considered amateur national anymore. Like, the different, you know, even back then, I don't know which people were counting up, NMA, AMA, but I know it was a lot. And, uh, well, Suzuki was already, I mean, at that time, I'd say the premier amateur racing team you had some folks on Yamaha and that was pretty prestigious and, and rare also, but I think the, the premier deal. And then of course you had Honda, but the premier was, I think the most coveted, the most highly coveted was Suzuki. I think for most of the, of the time. And so some people thought that the KTM move was, was, was a bit strange. We always liked KTM and cell opened up the keys to the kingdom. And so he was great. 
we liked KTM. The, the, the vibe was really good. We were able to do our own thing, which, you know, we were kind of used to doing. And Cole was great. You know, Cole, Cole held nothing back. He just couldn't match that offer. And, um, I think part of the reason we had so much success that year, yeah, was because KTM really was all in. And that was the difference. And, you know, it still is. Cole did a lot. He really did. But when the, the, the Japanese president of, of, Kate, of, of Suzuki and when they rotate on the Japanese uh, companies, sometimes you get a huge chop. And I think he got a huge chop. And so a year or two after. And, but KTM is all in. You know, they had to be. And so, you know, we were in California at the factory and, you know, stuff that you couldn't really do at Honda or Kawasaki or Suzuki just because they were much larger companies and they didn't necessarily need to win as much. And so that was the main difference. You know, KTM was willing to do whatever it took to win. And Sal had the, the jurisdiction to make that happen. And so I wish I'd have got another ch- another chance to ride with the, with the Austrian group um, because it was really my favorite you know, bike. I really like Suzuki company too, as far as the Japanese stuff goes, but it was really, we're pretty, you know, fond of the KTM, uh, company and the people. This is brand new. Like this is breaking news. Like this was, it just was broke yesterday. Um, it's the verb moto world mini grand prix. We're bringing it back to Mesquite. You had some great rides there through the years. So, um, I think one year you, you won like 18 titles and you rode the 50 class all the way to four fifties. Was that correct? Yeah. yeah. I rode a lot. That was 07. That was at the different facility. As you said, I knew it changed from there at one point in time, but I, and then it went to Mesquite. I don't know what, what happened of it, what became of it, but that was with KTM. And, uh, yeah, the funny thing, I probably have said this before, but the funny thing was my, I wasn't even planning on racing the 450 class that day, that, that race. Um, and I never even rode a 450, but my dad was like, yeah, let's do it. Why not? So it was, it was on a, it was on a hunch and a whim and whatever it was, it served, served us well. Um, you know, that sort of thing could go, it could go bad pretty easily, but I think my riding style always suited a 450 better anyways, but that was one of the reasons I was able to win, you know, uh, seven instead of, you know, four or five championships, um, is because we added those and I was still on the super mini class. So that was my, yeah, that was my last, uh, that was my last super mini race. And it's unreal because no one's going to do that these days at all. Like you got, you're not gonna catch anybody doing super mini to a 450. There's no way. I don't even know no, if the rules right. allow it. No, you're right. And that's actually another thing. So I'll, I'll take that and run with it for a minute. But back then you would ride, the guys would ride at the very least, 250s and 450s and now the one of the biggest things i've seen is you have 250 specialists and that's not a bad thing i mean certainly 250s are fast enough if you're a factory kid you can ride the 250 in the 450 class and, and it just makes you probably better but you don't have the versatility um because we were on two strokes 135s 250f stock mod 450s and so I think things have gotten less versatile. Of course, back in the day when it was racing in the 60s and the 70s, guys would race not only many different bikes probably, but different sports even. They were doing Supermoto and TT and dirt and then Enduro. So it was even more versatile. But so it's lost a bit of the versatility, but the guys have gotten, of course, really good on 250s. And so, you know, if you're racing 250 class for two, three years, I mean, it kind of makes sense in a way. But probably hurts them a little bit when they're getting ready to make that 450 change i don't know but that's something that i i've definitely noticed so yeah after 2007 when, when ktm 
um, you get the offer from Factor Connection Honda, and uh, you're following in Kennard's footsteps. He had the sure. obvious, you know, came out <laughs> swinging, won the championship his first year. Uh, 2008 was a big year for him. So when you signed your deal as an amateur, did you have any other offers? or And, and what was that first year like on the amateur program side kind of deal? Because I don't think I've well, heard too much about that. Yeah, it was... We had other offers. Well, we had an offer from KTM, um, and I don't know who else there was. Um, if there was anyone else we were talking to, but you know, KTM's program in a lot of ways, well, in most probably every way, was was actually better. Amateur racing uh, was better than Honda's. I know Trey did exceptionally well on Honda, but he was a Honda guy like through and through, and you can see it. And you're either a Honda guy or you're not. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Those are two types of people in the sport. You're either a Honda guy or you're not. And I know Honda's good, and I really liked the the people there, of course, and the, and the the infrastructure of the Geico Honda team was was awesome. And I've had lots of friends that I was able to make from back then. I talked to Ziggy every now and then and Kibby and stuff. But you couldn't really beat the KTM program. I mean, it was it was it was far superior in a lot of ways. Um, and so I liked the KTM more it, it seemed to agree with me for whatever reason it was so yeah i mean the ktm program was 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 really you couldn't beat it i don't know if they could beat it now i mean it was just i don't know you know i mean the economy affects the amateur racing like a lot the economy was good at that time and then in 2008 it really turned and went down it started to go down um, I don't know what it's what it's like now and what amateur riders get. I know there's more factory rides available in amateur racing, but it wasn't really around back then. Um, and so that was like essentially a factory ride, and it was it was awesome. Um, the the Geico Honda was just deal was just, they were so much more further along, I guess you could say, in the on the pro side. That was just KTM's sort of Achilles heel at the time. They had guys that had won, and there was championships that they had won, and they had a they had a good bike. The bike was never in question, really. But their team, they were they didn't have a factory team at the time. I think they had MDK, and uh, it just didn't seem like that their their uh, pro team was was as organized as their amateur team was. You know, if Sal was running the pro team, then I think that it would have been an easy transition from KTM amateur to KTM KTM pro. Um, and Geico had more of that transition. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a big question. That one's a big one. Cause mm-hmm. there's really, I guess, it, what was your main, what were you wanting to know mostly about it? The, the 08 or the, just kind of like, just kind of go into, you know, Kennard had his, he was the first one picked by that, that the team. Right, true. True. Well, actually it was Grant, but I think true. that I don't, like Grant turned pro and went with them, but he wasn't with them in amateurs. Right. Right. Um, but they had him, I guess, when he turned pro. I don't know if he went straight to it or not. But, yeah, Trey was, did so well early on, and he really meshed well with the team and really meshed well with the Honda bike. I think that's one of the reasons why he did extremely well for other reasons as well. He's a really good Supercross guy. Um, and myself, you know, I like the people there, but I didn't mesh as well with the, the team concept because it was still a bit new mm-hmm. going from doing our, it was still new. I mean, most people don't think about this, but when you do your own amateur program for 10 years and then you go to a pro program where somebody else is in charge and you got four or five guys you got to share stuff with and you, you know, we got more stuff in 
from KTM Amateur than we did ever as on a, on a pro team. You know, in terms of bikes, you need bikes. Here, you need this, you need that. And in the pro teams, the pro teams are really good. Don't get me wrong, and you're getting paid for it, but they don't get as much stuff as and gear and, and everything. And so you got to share space, and there's got to share personnel, and you just don't have to do that when it's your own deal. And that's really an unrealistic thing. Like you can't have your own amateur team and then go to your own pro team, and it, like it's that would be a very difficult thing to do. So it took me a little bit of time to adjust to that. And then I meshed, you know, once I left Daiko, I meshed really well with mm. um, the Suzuki guys and then later on the IB Corp team. Like, so I, I learned that, but it took a bit of an adjustment. And, uh, you know, being a young guy, 16, 17, whatever it is, it's going to California. It's just a different, it's a different change of pace. You see some guys, some amateur kids really do well in that uh, environment, in that setting, and some don't do so well. And you can see him, and you can spot him, and you go, "This is this team deal probably wouldn't work for that guy because it's not the right environment." And that's the reality of it: is when you go pro, it's it's not just the bike and it's not just the money; it is the environment. Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? You know, did you you have siblings? Do you not have siblings? Did you grow up in a very friendly environment with with where the amateurs are all getting along? That's more prevalent today. I think it was prevalent in the '90s as well with in the pros, but. In our time, it was just so cutthroat. Maybe not cutthroat, but it was so competitive. And so it was every man was an island, so to speak. I mean, compared to what it is now, mm-hmm. for sure. I don't think guys are have nobody even a grudge match looks like anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's okay. That's not, that's not a bad thing. But for me, speaking on my KTM to Honda to pros that was something that is very real and, and probably overlooked. Um, but yeah, no, it's perfect. That's, that's exactly what, like it's, you don't hear uh, that side of the sport too much. Um, so thanks for the insight on that. I appreciate that. And if you, yeah. if you could, like you said, you were more like built for a 450. You said your style is more of a 450 guy. Yeah. Did you ever think about maybe trying the 450 class out? Yeah, I was going. We were going to in 2011. We got we spoke to um, Eric Kehoe at the time at Atlanta Supercross, and Trey had been injured not too terribly long before, or something of the something of the. Let's see, 2011. Yeah, so yeah, he was on was he on big bike? Anyways, whoever their guy was, I think it was him was injured. And so I was going to go to 450 on the outdoors because Kehoe knew that I liked the 450 and that I rode it extremely well, but I hadn't really ridden it much in the pros at, at this point because it, I didn't race it. I couldn't race it. I would have raced it. Right. I'd race the 450 in the lights class in the same night if they'd let us. <laughs> but and done better. Oh yeah, done better because my body would have been more acclimated to the style of racing that I was used to, which was like go go go, and it gives your body a chance to warm up but i wanted to i really did but that year and supercross i my shoulder issues that I'd, I'd had for a while with the labrums um both of them had to be repaired in retrospect i could have done maybe one or two races at least just to say that i did them and seen how it went and it might have went incredibly well and i could have just finished out the season and got my shoulders fixed after but so that was it and i and i ended up so i didn't get to do it but i ended up racing the 450 for X Games, which was a bit premature for Supercross, but Motocross, I know I could have jumped in right away. It always did fit my style better. 
it, and it, what it was for me was lower rev and you still have to ride of course the 450 super hard you know that's obvious in, in the pros but it's a lower rev thing it's different frequency it's, mm. it's something about it is different and it makes for a more relaxed chassis things on the 450 are smoother so just certain people certain types of people who are, are just different they can do more with with available power and you can open up lines in the track and and just there's more there's more it's a different way to have to write it so yeah that's my one of maybe i wouldn't say a regret but i would have liked to have done something on the 450 it could have been in supercross later on when i was a little bit heavier um but early on it just wasn't the just the timing didn't work out and, right um but i would have liked to have for sure yeah yeah that, that's true i was looking at the results and i'm like man you, you never you know you came back in 2019 and then um now, you know, you got 10th or last race, you know? So it was like... Yeah, well, no, actually, I did it. I came back in 18, but I did it in 19 as well. The problem was, yeah, 19, it may have been a good year to try the 450 because I uh, I didn't really have, like, a. I, I got a late start that year because I tore my ACL the year before, and I wasn't meshing super well with the lights Honda at that time. So that would have been a good time for it. But at that point, I was still building up my cardiovascular. So, you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda. It is yeah. what it is, but I always love the 450. Yeah. No, it's awesome. You can't beat it. You can't beat it. <laughs> can't beat it. No, it's the best. Nice. Well, thanks for your time, man. This was great. Thanks for taking the time for the for me today. No worries. I hope I got whatever you needed. And, and uh, yeah, keep me in the loop on some of the stuff that you guys are, are doing. And I'm always looking to do different types of content and sometimes different wild and um, always looking to work with some some video guys, and obviously Wes is good. So right. maybe we can maybe we can link up at some point. I know he'd mentioned something about doing some vintage stuff, so we're gonna do the XR two hundred at Daytona. That we're gonna put that race on, and then we're gonna do uh, Boise, Idaho for sure. Maybe maybe something else, but so yeah, I'll be good. Listen to the loop, and we'll cross paths. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Okay, see ya. Take care. Bye. bye.